Great to be together today as we continue our series in the book of Daniel called Dream. We can be opening our Bibles there to Daniel chapter 4. We'll be there in just a minute. So I was 14 years old and I was doing homework in my room and I had the music on. Anyone do homework with the music? When you guys, yeah? And I was listening to the mamas and the papas. California dreaming. I dreamed a little dream. Greatest hits. And I'm listening to the music sort of in the back of your mind. You're doing homework, trying to focus. And I hear something and I wasn't sure where it was coming from. Let's listen in. twice, right? Everyone get it? So, so I'm listening and doing my homework and I hear, you know, my name, John. And it's John. And at first I thought mom is messing with me, you know? And so I'm, I open the door. Mom's not there. I go upstairs. Mom, were you, were you at my door whispering to me? No. So I go back down, and it's strange. And so, you know, I played the song over again, thinking, oh, I want to listen to the song again and just keep doing my work, because I missed it, because I was focused on, I didn't know it was from the song. So I play it again, I hear it again. John. And it's kind of creepy, right? John. And I, I, st- I start, what, what is going on? My brother might be playing a prank on me. Finally, I figure it out. It's the music. And then I'm going, why is that in there, <laughs> you know? And of course, Michelle Phillips singing the song, you know, husband John, she was, you know, talking about dreaming and John, right? So I finally figure it out. I get to the bottom of it. But there is something so interesting and so magnetic about our brains when it comes to hearing our names. We love our names. We love hearing our names. And if you were to hear your name now, Rebecca, Steve, right? It, your brain would, would all of a sudden start paying attention to what's going on. And actually, it's interesting. There was a study done uh, by a whole bunch of different people. But in the U.S. National Library of Medicine, 2006, it's printed this big study. It says our brain chemistry actually changes when we hear our names. That, that something inside, something chemical, something biological is taking place in our brains with neurosynapses firing in a different kind of way than when you hear other names or other things that are said. We are attached in some innate way to our names. And of course, we have all kinds of songs with names like, say my name, say my name, and all kinds of other, you know, that we sing about. And as we get into Daniel chapter 4, we're calling it, I Call Your Name. That is the name of the song from the Mamas and the Papas, where I got creeped out by my name being whispered. And as we lead into this, we're going to talk about this idea of craving to hear our name. In Daniel chapter 4, leading up to it, we've done three chapters so far. So Daniel 1, uh, Daniel was a young teenager with his buddies. They took the 10-day test Uh, And there was a problem, and then there was a promotion. They did well with the problem, and then they were promoted, and the king was impressed. In chapter 2, he interprets the king's dream. There was a problem because no one could figure it out. They solved the problem. He gets promoted, and the king is impressed. Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's buddies, they have a problem. They're not bowing down to the idol. 
They are able to solve that problem by not burning in the fiery furnace because God and Jesus makes a cameo and the fourth person in the furnace, they don't bow down. The king is impressed and they get a promotion. So far, so good, right? And part of the theme, as we already see it taking place in Daniel, is that life following God is not going to be without its problems. But it's the way we face it and our faith as we go through it that's at issue now. So as we hit Daniel chapter 4, another 30 years has gone by. Remember, there was 20 years that went by between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Another 30 years has gone by. Daniel is probably around 60 or so years old now. He's been established as chief among the uh, interpreters of dreams and the group of astrologers and advisors around the king and uh, has done well for himself and his friends. In chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 4. And the reason why is because the first three verses of chapter 4 are really a tag on chapter 3. So we need to begin in verse 4 of chapter 4. Are you with me? I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Let's stop for a minute. What have we learned about Nebuchadnezzar, this great king of Babylon, uh, in the last three chapters? Well, a couple things. He's quite headstrong, and when he gets ahead of steam about something, he gets really excited and passionate about it. It's hard to break him from his agenda. But in all three chapters, we see God do something amazing through his people, and he's moved, right? You see his mind change. But then what else happens at the end of every chapter? There's this promotion, and then the beginning of the next chapter, it's like he forgot what happened, right? So here we are in chapter 3, and he's praising God, and everyone's going to bow down to the God of the Hebrews, and if they don't, they're going in the furnace. And we start chapter 4, these years have gone by, and what's he doing? He's going right back to where he started. He's going back to his old advisors, back to his old belief system. He's even restating Daniel's name as Belteshazzar after what, he clarifies, named after my God. Probably Marduk at the time. Not the God of the Hebrews. So as time goes on, he forgets the miracles and he might as well have just erased the amazing things he was witness to over the last several decades. You know, experts have studied how many people die in the same faith that they're born into. And CBS did a study and found about 84% of Americans still consider themselves devout or religious to some faith. And then the Pew Research study says, and there are all kinds of studies that say more than this, but a conservative estimate is that people that grow up with some devout or religious faith, about 70% or more of them will die in that faith. Meaning that even though they might go here and there in their lifetime, they end up believing or adopting the same belief system that they did when they were raised. Does that surprise you at all? Okay, some yes, some no, mostly no. 
So, in other words, if you were born a Mormon, you have a likelihood you're going to die a Mormon. Catholic, Muslim, Jew, Baptist, atheist, whatever it is, is a likelihood you're going to end up how you started. It's familiar. And so, whatever happens in between, we have this, again, this magnetism back to what we know. So, it's an anomaly to break the cycle of traditional and generational belief systems. It's an anomaly. It's an exception. Now, many of us in the room, we came to knowledge of God and studying the Bible and left what was familiar, many of us, uh, whatever that might have been, and became the exception. Became perhaps someone in your family that didn't do or believe the same things, or maybe you did. It's a lot of different types of experiences that we have, but probably you had to make a decision for yourself as an adult that you were going to engage in a way you hadn't when you grow up. Now, what's interesting here, as we're looking back at King Nebuchadnezzar, he has all these incredible chances to fall in love with the God of the Hebrews, to witness the miracles. He's got all these reasons, but for the same rationale, he finds himself going back to what is comfortable, what is familiar. So let's continue the story as we go into verse 9. It says here, I, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, is now Daniel... I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult to you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. All right. So this is the king talking to Daniel saying, I need you to interpret it for me. And he reinstates that he, the spirit of the holy gods, not the God, the one and only God is going to be in him and help him figure it out. And he says in verse 10, these are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked in there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. It was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under the wild animals, under it, the wild animals found shelter. The birds lived in its branches and from it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree. Trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times have passed for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms and earth and gives to them and anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Let's stop there. What is going on? This is a crazy dream. There's a big tree. Everybody can see it. Hard to imagine a tree that all around the globe people can see. And then all of a sudden we're talking about somebody who goes from human to having the mind of an animal. You would be confused too if you woke up with this dream, right? And Daniel's response, and we're going to keep reading here. We're going to jump to verse 22. He is afraid. He knows immediately what the dream means. And he starts getting really scared. Look at verse 22. Your majesty. You are that tree. You have become great and strong. 
Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And he goes on and he, he tells him about basically what the dream means. And we're going to skip ahead here uh, to verse 27. But he basically tells him, you are the tree and we need to cut you down. God said, you got to cut down to the stump. Now, you're not going to be totally destroyed. We still need the stump. We, we're going to protect the stump because you need to regrow in a better way. All this stuff that you've done has built your pride, inflated your ego, made you forgot about God. So we need to take care of that. And we need to get you down to your roots and start over until you declare heaven rules. Verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Again, we see the faith theme here, right? We talked about this a lot last week. This idea that we're going to do what's right regardless of consequence or reward, right? Because even, he repeats it again, it may be that everything will go back to normal and then again, it may not. Either way, you have to do what's right by God. And that's a challenge for us today, right? That we need to do right by God regardless of what we're thinking we might get in return or what reciprocity or what promotion or what the consequences or rewards might be. We are bound to do what's right by the living God. And that'll be made worth it intrinsically, not about what happens as a result. That's a faith decision. And it says to the king, it may bring you back to your earthly success and it may not. Now, let's read on. Does the king take the advice? All right. Seven of us have read ahead and said, eh, eh. Verse 28, all this happened to the king. What does that mean? Everything that took place in the dream and interpreted by Daniel happened. Verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You seeing a theme here? My, me, I. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, God wasted no time. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times or years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Let's stop there. What's the context? When does he realize all these things and make this statement about his own majesty? What is he doing? He's taking a walk, right? And where is he taking a walk? It's on the roof of his palace. Remind you of any other story in the Bible, right? Okay, so he's up there and he's just admiring his own work, right? Walking on the roof of the palace, looking at what he's built. Now, Babylon, you got to understand the history and the power of the Babylonian Empire. Babylon was one of the preeminent cities of history, the largest city on the earth at that time. There's an artist rendering here on the right side that I'll read a little bit about and also some tile work and art pieces on the left. 
Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, visited Babylon about 100 years after King Nebuchadnezzar's time and was overwhelmed by his grandeur. He visited the civilized world and this took it all. Over 200 years later, Alexander the Great himself said, this is going to be my headquarters. This is beyond any empire I've ever seen. This is where I will make my home base. Babylon was rectangularly shaped, uh, a city surrounded by broad and deep water-filled moat. You can see the artists are rendering the moat there. It's not too clear, I'm sorry. And so there's all this water, this deep moat surrounding it, and an intricate system of double walls. Not just one wall, two walls, each wall over 20 feet thick, making sure he protects his kingdom. Then it's reinforced with defensive towers at 60-foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet wide. And then later the king added another defensive double wall, another defensive double wall. The outer wall, 25 feet thick. Eight 40-foot-high gates provided access to the city, decorated with 557 animals in bright colors against a glazed blue background. And we have an example of one of those 557 animals here on the left, taken by Ross and Maria Woods, who were just in Berlin in a museum, looking and said, oh, that's a picture and tile work from Nebuchadnezzar's palace. When I come home, I better tell John and give him the picture This is not a legend. This is not a story that was made up. This is historical fact. King Nebuchadnezzar was there. Archaeology confirms it. And you can go visit all the stuff in the museums, right? God gives us decisions by faith to follow him. But every now and then he throws us a little bit extra. This is a huge city, fortified. A 400-foot bridge across the Euphrates. 53 temples. Three different palaces. And the famous hanging gardens. At that time, the Greeks considered one of the seven wonders of the world. So there he is on the hanging gardens, on his tallest palace roof, on top of the world, top of his tree. Is it ever hard for you to be humble? You ever get to a place where you're just so filled up and inflated that it's just really hard to come down? That, That somehow things have happened in your life to just... Make you feel like you've done a whole lot of good and there's a lot of good feelings there and maybe accomplishments have been done, but perhaps you've been in a similar situation to the king where everything just looks out and you say, man, look what I have done to my glory in my lifetime. Maybe you can't relate to Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you felt like you've been on the opposite. Maybe you felt like you've been looking up at the hanging garden saying, man, when am I going to get up there? Wherever our perspective in life might be, there are times in our walk where we are really tempted to be proud, arrogant. You know, um, I was recently, I just came back uh, last night, Al Baker and I got a chance to go up to Boston uh, for 24 hours to be a part of the Christian Professionals Conference. And we didn't really know much about it. We hadn't heard much about it. And uh, all of a sudden we heard about it and uh, they asked us if we would share a little bit about our relationship as we work together in the church. Uh, the paid ministry staff, uh, the unpaid uh, ministry leader. And so we shared a little bit about that. It was a really amazing experience. And I hope they do it again next year so we can really make sure everyone knows about it and can get to it. But um, we were walking through one of the lobby areas and Al comes back and says, hey, you'll never guess what book is at the book table that they're selling. And I was like, I don't know, what, what's there? I'm like, is it the first principles book that I worked on? He goes, you'll see. And so sure enough, we went over there and uh, basically right there in the middle is, is a book that I put together, right? 
And, um, you know, it was cool. I was like, oh, we were asking questions. And, oh, I, I didn't realize you, you guys were selling this. This was, you know, really just for New York. But that's cool. And, and, um, and uh, you know, and, and I'm thinking in my head, you know, originally when we put this together, uh, there wasn't like a, an author credit. It was just, hey, the New York church put this together. Anyone uh, here that wants to use it to help study the Bible with people or, you know, teach what we believe about the Bible, it, it's available for you. And, um, you know, so I got a closer look and, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. And, you know, originally it was the inside cover. You have this front page so beautifully done by, by Will, Will Hall. And then you open it up and that side usually has like, you know, information about copyright and the authorship and all that. Right. We wanted to leave it blank. And then a couple of people that helped me put this together said, no, don't leave it blank. You need to say something that you were involved, something you got to put yourself in there. I'm like, why? And so we had this conversation about it and, you know, people need to, maybe it was if you said something wrong, they have to know who to go to to argue with you and say, that's fine. no. And so I finally, I finally relented and I wrote this little thing and basically what it looked like, you would open up the cover and on, you know, the left side, and it's very small print, it would say, this study guide is an amalgam of several other Bible studies and years of hard work by disciples of Jesus around the globe. Special thanks to Steve Kennard, the New York City Church, for the supervision, support, and contributions. John Markowski, editor, right? And then you see the table of contents. So, I'm looking at this book at the book table, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I wonder if, you know, it got through. Because the first round that we did, it didn't have that page. And so I opened it up. And it's not there. Absolutely nothing. All right. And I started chuckling and Al and I are kind of, you know, laughing a little bit about it. And uh, a part of me is starting to really hurt inside. Like, I didn't want to do this in the first place. People convinced me to do it. And then I made this tiny little thing that's like gray and small and no one's gonna be able to read it. And, and then it doesn't even print. So now I'm struggling. And then, you know, I come home and last night I started drafting an email to the publisher. Hey, I just noticed again, there's another print that doesn't have the information that we decided we wanted in there. And I had to erase the email. I had to erase the email because what am I looking for? Why does it really matter? And I'm not blaming anyone else for trying to, you know, oh, you should put it in there. It's me. It's my own heart. And God knows it. So he kept it blank. I don't know if he broke the printer that day or if he didn't allow the ink to fully form on the second page of the book cover. I don't know. I don't know. But I know sometimes we can relate to Muhammad Ali. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. <laughs> Lord, have mercy, right? Lord, forgive us for getting in those situations where we convince ourselves that we're all that great. But can I get an amen? We sometimes get there. That, that it's, there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness. And sometimes we don't do a good job figuring that out. I know I need help with it. Sometimes it's hard to be humble. Sometimes you do something awesome. You designed it. You wrote it. You coded it. You managed it. You conceived it. You executed it. And then you get the credit. And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> yeah, you're so amazing. Right? John, John. <laughs> They're clapping and then you pause and you soak it in and you stand on top of the hanging gardens and you go, man, I'm good. And you cross the line. 
And God becomes an afterthought. God starts to just shrink into the corner of my priority list and I start to swell and take up all the room until there isn't much left for the Lord. It's hard to be humble. Something else Muhammad Ali said is Superman don't need a seatbelt. You know, sometimes we get to a situation where we throw caution to the wind and we start taking risks out of that confidence turned into arrogance, a pride, not willing to get input, not willing to resolve, not willing to figure it out, not willing to go to God, not willing to bring him into our lives and let his words speak and change and transform us. We say, I got this. Can't you see all the other things I did? Wouldn't it have been easy for David to just rest on his laurels? I, I did kill a bear. I did kill a lion. I'm ready for this. But what does he go into the battle with? He said, the Lord is with me. The Lord got those victories. And the Lord's going to get this victory for me today. And that's where the power comes from. This scripture has always stayed with me slash haunted me. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. There's a lot of people that have different interpretations about what this means. Jesus is talking, I think about humility. I think he's saying, humble yourself. I think he's saying, fall on the stone. Allow yourself to be broken. Understand contrition. Get humble. Or God will humble you. And if you wait, it might be too late. You know, in the message paraphrase, it says you'll be smashed. In the King James Version, it says you will be ground to powder. There's a difference between broken and dead. And that's the the level of contrition and humility God is calling us to. And I think the warning from Nebuchadnezzar's life. We need to be humble. We need to allow ourselves to be broken, broken hearted, meaning that we're willing to allow God in to change us, to mold us. Sometimes we get so used to whatever mold we're in and like clay, we're not soft anymore. We get hard and then we break. Got to stay soft hearted. You know, the king basically, if you boil it down, he has a psychotic breakdown. Uh, It's not that he turns into an animal. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that his mind became convinced that he was an animal. And actually, there's terminology for this in the psychological world. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Lecanthropy? There you go. You can look it up. L-Y. And basically, this is where the Wolfman superstition began. I was really fascinated by this. You know, you watch Teen Wolf and all these movies. Where did it come from? Came from here. Lycromanthe, you know, Harry Potter, all that. Got it from here. It's a psychological condition where you start, you have a psychotic break and something starts to go haywire in the chemicals of the brain. And for him, it was seven years of basically thinking he was a wolf. Drenched in the dew because he'd been out all night and hunting and, and grazing like an ox out there and the, you know, not trimming his toenails and looking all raggedy. He, he went crazy. He, he lost it. Why? His insanity came because he wasn't willing to humble himself. He wasn't willing to allow himself to break. So the stone fell. What's the warning for us? Oh, by the way, how long did it take for God to bring that to him? Twelve months. The the punishment was seven years. But what happened for twelve months? The warning came, and then a year went by. Why? Because God is a merciful God. He said, I'm going to give you all this time to change your ways. But if you don't, then you're going to be thinking you're wolfman. 
You're not even going to know. In fact, it goes from a first-person point of view, the king writing it, to a third person because there's a time in there where he wasn't sane enough to write. There wasn't a record of it. So it comes out into a third person about him. He lost it. The warning for us. Perhaps God has been patient with us. Perhaps we're in a situation right now that is baiting your pride. And there's been a warning. And someone said something. Or the scriptures spoke out. Or here you are in church and you go, "Uh uh-oh, this is what it's talking about. And I don't know when your 12 months might get up. I don't want to know, right? You don't want to wait till it's too late. You don't want to test the boundaries of Hebrews 10.26. That there is some time that we're unaware of where unrepentant, unchanged sin willing and deliberately leads us to a place where there's no more grace because we're willingly saying, no, I'm rebelling against you, God. God is merciful. God is waiting for us. But it's our choice, our choice to change. Don't wait. Fix it. Resolve it. Apologize for it. Do whatever you have to. I'm pleading with you before it's too late. Get humble before he humbles you. Get broken before you die. Take it seriously and change. Let's finish the story in verse 37. It says, and then, the end of that time, seven years finished, and I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's back in the first person, raise my eyes toward heaven. And this is the big test, right? When you come through a challenging time, the question is, are you going to be different now? Some of us pray that prayer. God, if you do this, then I will give my heart to you. God, if you get me out of this situation, if you cure me of this, then I'm going to go for it. And then there's a time of reckoning where it's up to us to decide. And so Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes toward heaven. And he says here, verse 34, my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You know, in this dream, the tree has to be cut down. The pride has to be taken out. But the stump, the root remains. God is not interested in destroying us. He's interested in getting rid of the bad and growing the good. God wants the pride cut out of the tree in order for it to live and have a chance to grow better. Not not some crooked rogue on their own tree, not doing what they're supposed to do to get growth. He wants you in his kingdom. And he's got a great track record for this. Abraham. Abraham lost hope and then God restored it. Sarah laughed in unbelief and then God sobered her up and then blessed her. Moses was impulsive and angry and it broke him. And then God raised him up to lead millions. Hannah was barren, broken herself, and then God built her up to bear a child. David, man, too much to say, right? David was sinning like crazy, hit rock bottom, and then God blessed his repentance. Peter disowned Jesus. That's a big one. In a mess of tears and pity and regret, then Jesus reinstates him. Jesus himself was broken and buried, and then God resurrects him from the dead. 
If there's anything you get from today's message, it's that God's track record is all about seeing people that break themselves in humility and building them back up. His goal is to resurrect us from the ashes of our sin. Say, that's the past, and I've got a great future for you. To learn from Nebuchadnezzar's example, from his bad and his good, in the moments of repentance, and none of us can say we're better than him, because how many times have we rise and then we fall? We say, oh yeah, God is the kingdom of heaven. And then all of a sudden, we're back to our own gods. So he's an example of something that's very real for us. So the challenge to us, be humble. Proclaim heaven rules. And let God build you back up. Think of Psalm 1-3 being like a tree planted by a stream bearing fruit. And that's both individual but also collectively. Because when we are each individual trees planted by a stream. Getting the nourishment that we need from the word. From God. From the fellowship. From the church. Then he does something amazing. He multiplies us. And becomes a forest. A church. A huge tree. Not a bad one that needs to be cut. But one like Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, 32. A large tree providing shelter for those that need it. That lost souls can make their way under the shade under the protection, under the safety of God and his church. This is the goal. You know, we're all tempted to hear our names. We all want our names in bright lights. We all want the applause. We all want recognition. We want to see ourselves in the rolling credits. But how much better to see your name in the book of life? How much better to be sitting in the tree of life on the other side of eternity going, the only name I want to see, my, my the only place I want to see my name is right here, right now. And if I could trade everything, all the accomplishments that I got on the earth for this, fine, take it. This is where I want to be. You know, how much better to know that if your name doesn't come up here, that it will come up later. Or that if your name does come up here, if you do get a little recognition, you don't have to feel bad about that. It's all the way you handle it, right? I love the idea that maybe when our names do come up on this side of eternity, that there can be a little asterisk next to it. There can be a little trademark, a little copyright, a little note. And then when you follow the footnote down, what you see is by that name, it's all God's. You know, John Markowski wants to make sure that everyone who sees his name realizes that it was all God. He gets all the credit. He did it. The only reason I even have any gifts, able to do anything, is because of him. All good things come from him. And if I can be a reflection of his glory and goodness, then so be it. Let my name be used. But as soon as I start grabbing glory from me, might as well be erased. Humble yourself. And he will lift you up. Break and let him build you. Don't worry about your name being heard because when God calls it, that's all that's going to matter. And Jesus says it himself, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we struggle with wanting recognition affirmation, attention, success, credit, applause, and even adoration. And Father, we know that you built us with some of this in a good way to want to connect. But we know also that we could cross that line where a lot of that stuff could go to our heads and fill up our ego and inflate us to a prideful place that is outside your will. 
Father, today we want to ask for forgiveness. We want to ask you to forgive us for our many sins of pride. Where we've not repented, we've not taken it seriously. And, and even right now, God, we need your help to guide us back to humility. To break, to be humbled. To humble ourselves before it's too late. God, thank you for the examples we have in the Bible. Thank you for not holding back and not sugarcoating, but giving us real examples like Nebuchadnezzar, who just really struggled with the pride. God, thank you that we can learn from that and not fall into the same traps. But God, when we do sin, help us to recognize in those moments that it's Jesus that we want to be like, to be the most humble we can be. Father, we know that your son was, had all the power that, that he could muster in the universe, and yet he didn't tap into it. He allowed himself to submit to a cross. And as we take communion right now, we want to recognize that that's the ultimate example of humility. That he could have called on 12,000 angels. He could have broke the path, but he prayed and he humbled himself and he did your will, even though he didn't like it. Thank you that he put you before himself and thank you that even in the scripture, he reminds us that in order to imitate him, it's not about pleasing us, it's about pleasing you. God, we love you and we're so grateful for the scriptures to work in our heart and transform us. Thank you for this communion. We pray in Jesus' name.